it's a pet peeve of mine when people suggest that to write about basketball, you have to have played the game. This is, of course, my way of telling you I didn't play the game, not at any kind of significant level, but I've built a career in basketball writing despite this shaky handle, shoddy jump shot, and a high school career in which I was a manager, observing the game up close without logging a minute. As journalists are fond of saying, if experience was a prerequisite, only the dead could write obituaries. Still, I'll admit there's a perspective that comes from having played the game, especially at higher levels, that I just can't have. And Jason Temp has that. I've known Jason for a few years now, and if you don't, you should get to. He hosts Hoops Tonight on the Volume Podcast Network, and he does some strong film breakdown on X or Twitter or whatever we're calling that now. Jason never made it to the pros. He played small college basketball, but he's one of the best ex-players I know at applying his experience to breaking down and discussing the modern NBA. Today, we're leaning on that expertise to talk about the team the Thunder has built, why it fits, why it's off to such a good start, and what the future looks like for a franchise built around Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Chet Holmgren. And we'll touch a little on what OKC might need to take the next step. That and more with Jason Temp coming right up. I'm Brett Dawson, and this is Heard Thundering. Before we get started, a thank you to the sponsors who make the show possible, MidFirst Bank, the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, Fire Lake Casino, and your local Ford dealers. Drive into your best in Oklahoma Ford dealers today for the best deals on Ford's full lineup of trucks and SUVs. Ford is the best in Oklahoma. All right, and now let's bring in Jason Temp, host of Hoops Tonight on the Volume Podcast Network. Jason is our tallest guest so far. He's by far our best basketball player so far. No, no slights to Jay Kyle Mann or whoever is second. Um, and Jason, you know, I have a little bit of a ritual every day. I have coffee, whether it's here at my house or Elemental Coffee in OKC, or if I'm traveling somewhere and I'm on the road and I got to find a coffee shop in town. But like when I have my coffee is when I, I refresh my podcast feed. And like every morning in Apple Podcasts, there is Jason Temp's face staring at me. I feel like you do a podcast like every 35 minutes. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's not even every day, but you're high volume. You're doing a lot of, a lot of podcasting. So thank you. Uh, for the time to do this one. I really appreciate it. No problem, Brett. It's it's good to finally meet you face-to-face. -face. You and I have talked a lot over the years. This has been a long time coming. I think it helps yeah. that uh, Oklahoma City is easily one of the most interesting teams in the league this year, and we have so much to talk about on that front. Yeah, a bunch of... I, you've you've talked some on, on Twitter about them already, um, and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. But I, you know, for, for a little bit of background, which I like to give with the guests, um, I've known you for three years now, I guess, sort of like, and I say known you and this, you're not the first guest who's like, this is the first time I've interacted with you personally, but like we've known each other on Twitter um, since I was covering the Lakers. And you, uh, you talk a lot about the Lakers. You're a LeBron guy. You have a lot of expertise in the LeBron field. Um, so yeah, we got to kind of know each other back when I was writing about them and kind of talking to you about them. You taught me a lot about basketball, just following you. And you do, I think you do to me, one of the hardest things this is just in terms of podcasting. You do a lot of really good stuff. Like, you know, if people don't follow you on Twitter, they should because um, they can find out that you are still giving it to people on the court at this point <laughs> in your life. Um, but also, like, I, I, you do one of the hardest things in podcasting to me, which is you sit there by yourself every day. Most days, it's just you. Uh, and you talk for however long you talk, 20 or 30 minutes or whatever. And I learn a lot about basketball and I'm entertained and there's like nobody for you to bounce it off of. And that is incredibly hard. It's a great skill. Yeah, it's it's funny because I'm trying to get a little more balanced in the sense that I think um, I think that there's value in the solo thing, 
particularly when it comes to like film session type of vibes. And like that, I think is what allows it to work as a format on my show is the sense that the, the meat and potatoes of my show 90% of the time is just going over film, talking about X's and O's. And so it's more like I do a film session, like I'll watch film for like four or five hours in a day and I'll write all these notes. And then I'm basically just talking about all the cool stuff that I found out. You know what I mean? Whereas right. I think there's a di an entirely different type of dynamic when you are working with someone else. And we, uh, we're working on trying to balance that out to more of like a 50, 50, where half the time I'm alone and half the time I'm working with somebody talking more conversationally. Cause I think there's, there's value in both elements. And so I think it's a delicate balance, but at the same time, there's no doubt that when it comes to like the film session, really going over what I learned about a team, it's just easier when I can just kind of go on and on and on and on, you know what I mean? And that's what works for that yeah it does work and it, it, it's really good i mean I, I would tell people if you haven't checked it out you should you will learn stuff about basketball because jason really knows it you didn't you didn't play in the nba but i said this in the intro i think you're as good as anybody i know in terms of taking your playing experience and applying it to like today the modern nba i think you just really understand basketball which is a great skill i mean it's a great great it's great content because you really understand the game um with that, I want to ask you, the first question I'm going to ask you is, when's the last time you dunked on somebody? Because you do it, and I'd just like to know. It's been a little while. I've been dealing with this Achilles soreness. Uh, it, so basically, wow. I was playing the best that I had ever played uh, going into this summer. And then my wife and I went on just a, a bunch of trips. I was out of town five weekends in a row. I went to Montana. I went to a wedding in Texas. I went to Vegas for summer league. My wife and I went to San Francisco for the final Grateful Dead concert. Then we went to Japan for a week. And at one point I was out of town for 16 consecutive days. And so then when I came back, I tried to ramp back up. And when I ramped back up, I started having this like pretty significant soreness in my Achilles. And I've actually taken, I just finished taking a month off entirely and I'm slowly ramping back up now. So my goal is to get back on the court and to be playing five on five competitively by the end of the year. That's the goal. So okay. hopefully it won't be too many more months before I can uh, get another dunk under the under the belt. You're like the only person I talk to interact with on a regular basis who when I say dunked on, I don't mean like you roasted them on Twitter or X or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like you literally dunked on them. It's like a thing that you do. So, yeah, I need you to get back there, too. I want to live vicariously through that experience. So, Jason, mostly what we're here to talk about is the Thunder, and you talked about the the start that they're off to. They're a little better than I expected. I don't know where they are relative to what you expected out of them, but what have you seen to this point? Kind of what's jumped out at you about the way they've, they've started? They're exactly where I expected them to be in the sense that through the dregs of the regular season, the sheer amount of talent and youthful exuberance they have has led them to win uh, a lot uh, to win the preponderance of their games, right? That said, I think you've seen some of the limitations of the roster, at least as it pertains to their overall size, specifically in certain types of matchups. The bigger front lines have given them issues, particularly on the glass and in the paint. And some of that is just roster construction, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But at the same time, yeah. I think they've been smart in the sense that this is the way you go about it. You, th This group has such a long window, potentially, that it's it's better to be more patient and to to put up with some of the limitations of the group and to kind of learn more about the players than to jump the gun and to try to make it feasible in the short term. I'll give you a counter example, for instance. Like, I really like that they're just playing Chet at the five. To me, it's it, it's the it's the future of the league. It's the future of his kind of place in the league. And, you know, when you look at a team like Cleveland, they 
insist on playing Evan Mobley at the four. And the part that the problem that I have with that specifically is it kind of it not only does it cause them issues in the short terms in terms of the kind of offensive geometry of the team, but it just doesn't make sense, in my opinion, to not give Evan Mobley just a ton of reps at that specific position. And I think of both Evan Mobley and Chet as like guys that play alongside big forwards in the future. And that's the thing is both of those teams have to provide that that uh, defensive anchor with that type of bigger, stronger forward. And I do think that the Thunder will have some issues until they find who that guy is, but it's smart for them to be patient and not jump the gun because this is, again, a long window that they have to work with. We're going to talk about that in a minute because I do want to talk about both positional size and then the, the sort of the, I don't know, the the conflict of of finding a guy who plays the way you're talking about and also doesn't kind of screw up what they've got going right now uh, in terms mm-hmm. of their their skill positional skill and the way they they the, the style they play and the the way the ball moves and the guard to guard screening and all that kind of stuff but the first thing i kind of want to talk about you mentioned chet and obviously he's been sort of the story i was talking to a national nba writer not the, not too long ago just having a conversation and one of the things he talked about is that i think one of the pitfalls young teams have a lot of times this team is pretty well set up uh, to to fight against which is that right now it looks like, I mean, Shea is a superstar and Chet has that kind of potential. And their two superstars have very, or potential superstars, have very little crossover in the way they play, right? These two guys should, theoretically, they have so far and should theoretically moving forward, just fit really well together without at least a play style conflict. Yeah, so what I like specifically about that Chet element is there's a reason why a lot of teams run guard guard screens now. And it's just a simple factor of getting an advantage, an opportunity for a player to kind of to have an angle to get downhill, but having both players involved be offensively skilled players, meaning players that can dribble, shoot, and pass. And it's just extremely difficult to do with the majority of big men around the league. And and in that specific situation, like that, that's what allows Chet to kind of turn that into functionally a traditional pick and roll against certain coverages, but also have some of the advantages of a guard guard, you know, or two perimeter player pick and roll against like switching or, or when they do recover out of it. I'll give you an example. You guys remember that Chet Holmgren left shoulder fadeaway that he hit over the Lakers that came out of a pick and roll. They ran it on the right side of the floor. And after they made the pocket pass to Chet, they just cleared the side and let him go to work, right? And and th- that specific element is part of the big picture thing that makes the Thunder so hard to guard. And sp- like so many teams, when you see a guy like Shea, meaning a heliocentric, you know, guy who spams pick and roll on the majority of possessions, so many teams will blitz him to try to get the ball out of his hands. And you really can't do that against the Thunder. And this extends beyond Chet to the entire roster. But like giving four on threes to that much Ball handling and shooting is a suicide mission. And just to give you guys some perspective, the Thunder have been blitzed in pick and roll only 11 times all season. And as a comparison, the Dallas Mavericks have been blitzed 46 times because of the fact that when you can get the ball out of those guys' hands, the back-end ball handling is not as dynamic, and you actually have a better chance of getting a stop in that situation. And Jalen Williams last year did some good work in that spot, specifically you know, running four-on-threes and things like that. But... Chet's just a much, much more high-level version of that. And again, on the defensive end of the floor, he's got his work cut out for him with everything with his uh, just how thin he is right now and the lack of overall kind of like size and athleticism around him to help. But at the same time, in the big picture, 
that's what gives you that ability to run five out sets with all this interchange and motion and screening and popping and driving and kicking. And, and it just essentially gives you a fifth perimeter player and the ability to play small, so to speak, offensively while still having that top end potential on the other end defensively. Yeah. The other thing, you know, the other night, Dallas, um, Dallas did really aggressively run two guys at Shea. They trapped, um, they were they were pretty assertive in trying to get the ball out of his hands. Some teams, as you mentioned, have not tried to do that. They did it really uh, aggressively. And one of the things that Thunder did late in the game, they put Chet in kind of short roll situations. He was kind of the safety valve when those traps came. And then he can make some decisions out of that position. Sometimes he might look to score there, but he can also kind of fan the ball out to some of those other guys you're talking about who have playmaking ability. Um, it also puts him in great offensive rebounding position, which mattered against Dallas late in the game. There's a ton of stuff they can do with him in terms of he's not a creator off the bounce. He can attack a closeout, but they can put the ball in his hands and let him decide some things and initiate some offense. Yeah, again, like static shot creation against a set half-court defense is always a different level of shot creation. And again, like I think people have outsized expectations there because there's only there's there aren't that many players in the league that are great at it, you know what I mean? But like to me, the modern basketball is all about advantage creation, advantage extending and then play finishing. And so like it's a down the roster thing from the standpoint of like the Thunder don't need Chet to break the defense down. That's something that Shea can do. That's something that Jalen Williams can do. That's something that Josh Giddy is at least capable of doing, right? And then Chet is just another cog in that system and their ability to expand the advantage and to finish plays. And one other thing I wanted to shout out with him, because he's been one of the most productive role men in the NBA this year. He's actually scored, um, uh, he's 10th in the NBA. Uh, excuse me, let's see. He's, se he's seventh in the NBA in points scored out of the short roll which uh, he's actually scored 74 points there already this season. And as a team, the Thunder have been a top 10 pick-and-roll team in production. And a big part of that, I think, is he can do both popping and rolling, which is a yeah. really unique capability in the sense that, like, a lot of the, you know, uh, uh, great, uh, you know, pick-and-pop bigs are not excellent athletes that can provide above-the-rim spacing. And a lot of the guys who are great athletes that provide above-the-rim spacing can't pop to the three-point line. And Chet specifically has really good instincts about when to do either. You can actually see him kind of reading the play as he's coming off the screen and identifying when there's gap like enough room for him to roll downhill hard versus when he sees that it's congested and it makes the most sense for him to, to, to pop out to the three point line. And I, I just think he's kind of a, he's just ahead of his years, so to speak, and his ability to kind of as a decision maker on the offensive end of the floor. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's funny. I think that year helped him. The, the kind of red shirt year definitely helped in terms of just being able to observe and watch the game. But a lot of that is just natural instinct. He's just a smart basketball player. He, you know, somebody, asked him yesterday about that year and he said it's more helpful than not having it but not nearly as helpful as playing games like he's learned a lot more in 20 games here than he learned last year just because you're out there doing it but I do think that's the thing about him he's got a real natural instinct you talk like you watch a ton of Anthony Davis because you watch a lot of the Lakers AD has a good feel but he has no real you know th there's not a great point in popping AD you know like he's just I know that they talk about wanting him to shoot more but he's not a shooter um, Chet's an excellent shooter. Uh, teams are closing out to him and he's attacking closeouts. It, it creates a whole bunch of stuff offensively that, as you, as you said, most big guys don't create uh, who also have that ability to roll and dive and catch lobs and do those sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. Like, like Miles Turner can pop and pick and roll, but no team is 
is running out at him like he can make right. it. Chet is like straight up a dangerous guy to leave open at the three-point line. And, and yeah, I mean, it, specifically with Anthony Davis, I can tell you from experience, it's been incredibly frustrating because all <laughs> the talk coming into the season, not just from Darvin Ham, but from Austin Reeves talking about how well he was shooting and like he has flat out abandoned it. And you can see yeah. with a team like the Lakers, I mean, you even see that in the Suns game last night. Like every time Anthony Davis catches on those kind of pops out near the top of the key, he looks like Draymond Green. He's turning and running a dribble handoff every single time. It's like he doesn't even look at the rim in that situation. I, th- I, I think it just essentially makes your offense more predictable and it allows the defense to accommodate other areas by not having to work about that specific shot right yeah with Chet you got to fill that space you got to close you can't I mean some teams will Rudy Gobert left him because that's what Rudy does he's not going to chase a guy out to the three-point line and Chet didn't shoot the ball well and they lost that game he got great looks a lot of times teams aren't going to do that and a lot of times when they have you know he's punished them for it um I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the other night in the Dallas game and it's one of the weirdest games in the history of the league, probably. They give up a 30 nothing run and win the game. It's super strange. <laughs> but there were, there were moments in that game where, and, and there's a lot, a lot of reasons why this is probably happening, but there were moments in that game watching Jalen Williams, J-Dub, the, the starter, um, where I thought, like, it was one of the first times this year where I thought, this kind of feels like a third of a big three. Like, this guy's really good. He's just got a, a great feel offensively, and he's... To me, what I'm starting to see out of him is, one, he's a great fit for Shea and Chet because a lot of guys would be great fits there. But just some of the stuff he can do in terms of his, you know, his ability to drive, his ability to just play off great players and play in space, really helpful. He can. I was talking to Mark Dagnalt about this yesterday. He can guard up or down, so he can guard a smaller guy if he has to. But he can also guard power forwards, which gives them a lot of, like, versatility around him you can play him with a bunch of different guys and then the other thing that's starting to come a little bit is like when those two guys are off the floor he can just take it and play off the bounce a little bit and get downhill and run some pick and roll um I I I think people expected a lot of him and I think the start was not as great as what a lot of people expected but I think if you look at him in terms of a complimentary piece to those two guys he's he really looks like something to me no, I 100% agree. I, I, I thought I, I put in my notes resounding yes from the standpoint of whether or not Jalen Williams could be a uh, a third of a big three. To me, he's Jalen Brown, but that can pass the basketball. Like, it's really that simple. And specifically what I'm talking about when I say Jalen Brown, it's this shorter, stockier wing that's a top-tier athlete that has almost no trouble getting to his spots. And then, you know, that complements Shea really well because Shea is like this kind of shifty, you know, methodical shot creator. And then Jalen is more of like this brute force athlete in his ability to get to spots. He's really young, right? Like we're talking about a 22-year-old and he's been over a point per possession in his self-creation situations, meaning against a static set defense when he runs a post-up, an ISO, or a pick and roll, including passes. He's run 170 such possessions, leading to 179 points, which is 1.05 points per possession. Now, again, we got to factor in there the aggregate ball handling, and he's passing to some really skilled players. But to me, as a young player, his ability to just kind of like break the defense down, but also play within a five-man unit and kind of a drive and kick system, as you mentioned, just his ability to play off of other stars, just makes him the perfect complimentary star. I mean... He's already averaging, uh, uh, he already has a two to one assist to turnover ratio. He's already averaging more assists than Jalen Brown has ever averaged in a season. 
He's averaging fewer turnovers than Jalen Brown has averaged at any point in the last five seasons. He's just kind of a more advanced version of that archetype further along in his development. I'm a big believer, too, in playmaking being kind of a natural ability, something that you can work out through reps and, and experience, but that for the most part, you either have that gene or you don't. And to me, Jalen has that gene. And the one thing I will say is I think he's kind of miscast in this lineup because he's effectively kind of playing the four as an athlete. And yeah. in that, it, it, within that respect, like I, I think if you slot Dort and Jalen Williams up a slot to the two, three, instead of the three, four, I think it just makes more sense in terms of the athletic matchups that he has to deal with. But again, that's a problem that it just needs to be solved at some point over the next couple of years. And I think it's good that they're being patient with it. Yeah, I mean, he guarded Carl Towns the other night. That's his assignment when they play the Wolves, you know? So, like, now he, he does a good job, you know? He's one of those guys, he's really strong. And so he's, like, he's one of those, like, um, he has some of that Chris Paul, James Harden, like a big guy gets on him and thinks, I can just back this guy down, and you can't. You know, so he, he, he does give you a little bit of that, just the strength. But Carl Towns is sort of looking to back guys down. He did do a nice job, uh, and he does a nice job against a lot of those guys. But I think you're right that eventually some of that stuff's going to have to change positionally. They're so fun the way they play, and and we can. This is a good transition into some of that. The way they play is great. I mean, the 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 guard for guard screening stuff is great. Um, it's uh, you know I think it was Billy Donovan was talking about this, um, and Steve Kerr's talked about it in terms in playing them that like. They just put guards in such weird defensive positions. Guards have to guard things they just never guard against some other teams. And you're seeing more of that, so there are more teams doing it. But they kind of were one of the first, pe- first teams to really start doing this and putting those guards in compromising pick-and-roll positions. Um, but it does create some problems. It's incredibly fun, but it's also, you know, they're one of the worst rebounding teams in the league. Um, they just lack a lot of positional size. Like we're talking about some of these matchups. And I wonder from your perspective, if you're thinking about one, let's talk about that rebounding piece. You, you, you played, um, I'm sure you were one of the biggest guys on some of your teams. Um, if you're on a small team and you're playing some of the ways that they play, what, what can you do about rebounding when you're small? So from a personnel standpoint, the shortcoming is in my opinion, they, they just don't have a high motor athlete that is a starter caliber offensive player that's over six, eight. And that just kind of puts everybody slotted down into a position where it's tough. That said, I don't think that that's enough of of an excuse to justify how bad they've been rebounding because we're talking about the team that's been the second worst rebounding team in the entire NBA, at least on the defensive end of the floor. And so from that standpoint, like I, I look at it like you're going to lose some 50-50 balls in terms of high rebounds that come high off of the rim near the kind of middle part of the floor, right? But a lot of rebounds are long rebounds that go glance off the side of the rim, off the front of the rim, off the back of the rim, and they just go flying, you know, 15, 20 feet away from the basket. And the overall foot speed of the lineup should be able to pursue the ball better than they do. And so from that standpoint, I think I think just as a team, they can do a lot better in terms of ball pursuit. This is not a team that's going to win boxing out, so to speak, because in box out situations, guys are just going to be able to reach over the top. But just in general, all five guys have to be flashing down or crashing down from the wing to grab these contested rebounds. And I think, again, one of the big indicators of that is like they're they grab about 48 percent of available rebounds now, but they grab over 51 percent of available rebounds in crunch time, which is a strong indicator that when the chips are down, 
They just make better efforts yeah. and their athleticism shines through and they're able to get those uh, those contested rebounds. But again, like, you know, if you're a bigger team, it's about position and about making sure that you're boxing out and getting into a position where you can just reach up and grab the ball. But if you're a smaller team, it's all about ball pursuit. It's got to be everybody crashing down from the wing, making multiple efforts to secure defensive rebounds. Right. And like, like I know people affiliated with the Thunder like to say the, the point of the game is not to get rebounds, right? The point of the game is to win the game. And they are doing some trade-off stuff. Like they know they're costing themselves some rebounds just by playing the way they're playing. They're very small. Um, they're very fast. I think there's a tendency for their wings to want to leak out as opposed to going and getting some of those rebounds. They, they're yep. going to have to clean up some of that stuff because you do have to – they're going to offset some of the rebounding stuff because they force so many turnovers – uh, and that that's one of the things they're aggressive. They're small. Chet forces a million bad decisions a game. And so it's bad shots. It's bad turnovers as a result of like you turn the corner and there's Chet. You see this with Gobert all the time. We've started to see it a lot with Chet. So they do a lot of stuff that offsets rebounding. But you can't be this bad at rebounding and expect to be very good or expect to win a playoff series against a team that's very good at it. New Orleans killed them because they just got, I don't know, 20 or 21 more possessions than they did, or 20 or 21 more shots than they did. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe not that many. It was a ton, though. It's, it's a, that's a game you lost because you couldn't rebound the ball. New Orleans shot 36% and beat you at home. Um, and so I, they're going to have to do something about it, and you're right. I think some of it is cleaning up on the margins the way they're going to play now. These guards can't leak out. They can't be lax in chasing loose balls, that kind of stuff. That stuff has to be better because you're not going to get, as you said, those high rebounds aren't coming your way. Chet's going to get some of them and nobody else really is. No, 100%. And like specifically when it comes to the transition stuff, I, I think this team is a good enough half-court offense that they don't necessarily have to, depending on the matchup, leak out as much as they do. I think there's... Uh, there's a timely way to punish teams in transition when you see opportunities to like, I specifically like when a big man is barreling down towards the rim and falling down, you run as much as you can, but like in half court situations against these bigger teams, they might have to sacrifice a little bit of the transition pushing to just send five guys to the defensive glass. You know what I mean? And know that they can right. spread them out on the other end. Cause again, like we always look at like, oh, you have to punish a team with foot speed and transition. Not necessarily. You can also punish a a, a team that has a, a small, like a, a bigger team that has less foot speed just by spreading them out on the offensive end on the other end of the floor. Now, yeah. the one thing is like, again, we've got Josh Giddy, you know, converting spot up possessions at 0 0.75 points per possession and shooting 29% on catch and shoot jumpers. And that kind of causes some issues from the standpoint of their spacing in the half court. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. But at the, at the same time, like in the half court, I generally feel comfortable with this team's ability to generate quality shots when they spread a team out. And so from that standpoint, I think matchup specific, they just have to change their, their uh, transition approach to send more guys to the defensive glass. Right. I, I want to talk a little bit about Giddy. And like, I'll just say up front that we, we can't know, we don't know all the facts of what's going on with him off the court. And we don't know how much what is happening uh, as a result of that is affecting him. And I don't really want to dwell on that. It, it's not something that I can know. So I'm not going to concern myself a lot with it. But the bottom line is he's not played well. He's not finishing well when he gets to the rim. And I think the, the bigger point is what you talked about, the spot-up opportunities, the catch and shoots. Um, Dallas, the most recent game they played, as we're recording this, they play Houston tonight. Um, but da Dallas is, was just the latest team to kind of just give him the side of the floor he's on when he's in the corner. Um, they'll just let him have catch and shoot threes in the corner. 
Um, and, and for a team that thrives so much on creating space and creating advantages, it's problematic when you've got one guy who's just not getting guard. It's that's problematic for every team, but it's particularly problematic when you're playing the way they want to play to create those advantages, um, to have space on the floor. And the flip side of that is that Casey Wallace has been a really good catch and shoot player. And so you've seen them close with him a lot. You know, he's been in games, uh, down the stretch. A lot of times what you've seen in some situations is. Josh Giddy's on the bench in the fourth quarter until there's a really critical sideline out of bounds. And because he's an expert at that, they'll bring him in and then often kind of leave him in. They did that, the Golden State game uh, where Chet makes the shot to tie it. They bring in Josh Giddy at that point. He'd only played a few minutes of the fourth. They bring him in to make that sideline out of bounds pass. But like they've been better with Case and Wallace on the floor a lot of the time. Uh, and part of that is that thing is, is teams are not leaving him alone. I think ultimately nobody expects him to shoot the ball quite the way he has. Um, but teams are closing to him. It's been an interesting kind of thing to watch happen. Um, wh- what do you do with a guy like Giddy when he's kind of gumming up the offensive works this way? Well, the problem specifically with Giddy is he's been bad on the ball and off the ball, right? Yeah. And that's where it gets concerning because, like, I-, I mentioned the, the Jalen Williams self-creation stuff earlier. Giddy's been on similar volume, 173 possessions of pick and roll ISO and 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 post ups, 142.0.82 points per possession. He's been the worst rim finisher in the league. There are 42 players in the NBA this year that are attempting at least five shots in the restricted area per game. His 51% is dead last, and so like that's where it becomes one of those things where the Josh Giddy experience is. Okay, even in the best parts of last year, he wasn't a great catch-and-shoot guy, but he was a solid shot creator for them. And so when that piece is missing, it just kind of dips below that kind of like minimum allowable, you know, contribution on that end, especially since he's not an exceptional defensive player. And Kassan Wallace has been kind of a revelation in the sense that not only is he a good point of attack defender, not only is he shooting the laces off the basketball, but they can also kind of use him as a big man in roll situations. Like yeah. he can roll short to the basket and kind of operate almost as a big man. He can, he's got like this deceptively, uh, good ability to finish around the rim and dunker spot situations. It's kind of like Gary Payton yeah, it, in the second esque in, 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 in yeah, his it's ability crazy. to kind of just catch and around the trees too. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy how much they put him in the dunker spot. That's wild. Yeah, but it works. It works because he just has, he's, he's got good hang time around the rim. He kind of understands angles and body position and he can finish around there. And so to me, like, like they run into this issue too, where what's the other reason why they don't need Josh Giddy in their closing lineups? Well, it turns out that with as good as uh, Lou Dort has been knocking down catch and shoot threes with, with the ability of Jalen Williams and Shea Gilders Alexander to create shots and Chet Holmgren as a connective piece, his shot creation value kind of tanks a little bit from, and I mean, literally in just in how much they need it. And so again, you run into this issue. It's, it's kind of like the Laker issue with Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell. When you have, you know, a, a, a redundancy in shot creation and one of those guys is also not an outstanding defensive player, you run into a situation where you're like, we're actually better off putting out a guy like uh, Cam Reddish or Max Christie that will just defend like crazy at the point of attack, rotate as an athlete and knock down a catch and shoot three and attack a closeout. You know what I mean? Which begs the question, what does like the future kind of orientation of this team look like because if Josh Giddy is not going to be a top tier shot creator not going to be a good off-ball player and not going to be a good defensive player is he the right guy to put next to those two right 
So last thing I want to ask you, and we, we've built up to this a little bit by talking about some of these fits. I mean, the, the, the roster fits. It's a good roster. But uh, I think, you know, both with the rebounding piece and in terms of some of this positional size, uh, what they need defensively, um, you know, maybe they want another guy making shots out there. I think size on the perimeter, like a wing, is, is maybe the kind of thing. If there's a player or players out there that you think, okay, this is the piece – or if it's just a type of player, like what are you thinking in terms of this is a good team? This looks like a playoff team. But if they want to get to be something more than just that, what what are they looking at? So I like I look at obviously there are a million different ways to build a basketball team, but I've looked at the kind of ideal kind of uh, modern version of a basketball team is you have a skill guard, an athlete guard. Uh, a thinner perimeter oriented wing, a bigger, stronger, you know, guy who could kind of sort of play a small ball five if you need to type of big forward. And then an athletic, uh, a big man that can both defend in drop coverage and on the perimeter and be a plus offensive player, which ironically, they kind of check most of those boxes, right? Shea is your skill guard. Lou Dort is your athlete guard that can defend at the point of attack and make plays off the ball. J- uh, Jalen Williams, to me, is the ideal type of three. And Chet Holmgren is literally the guy who can defend and drop coverage, defend and switches, and can be a plus offensive player. So the four spot there is the need. Now, the guy I'd stay away from is Jeremy Grant, because I think that kind of mm. that kind of player makes more sense on teams that have a shorter window and teams that are more looking for scoring. And there I'm looking at like Golden State and the Lakers. Those are the teams that I think should be bidding after Jeremy Grant. If I was the Thunder, I'd be looking at Laurie Markkinen and Pascal Siakam this year. Specifically, I like Siakam because he's not terribly outside the window. He's 29 years old. He also has a lot of big game experience, which is something that this team is missing. And this team is going to find itself in a intense playoff environment this year. And it'd be great to have a guy who's played in the NBA Finals, who's guarded LeBron James in the Conference Finals, a guy who just has a bunch of reps in that specific situation. He's a great rebounder. He's a guy who struggled to shoot in catch-and-shoot situations, but is a good closeout attacker and, in general, has been a good offensive player this year. And so I think he makes a lot of sense. And then Laurie Markkinen, same type of thing, except for he's a little bit more of a offensive version of this archetype. But he is a great uh, defensive rebounder. He's averaging about nine rebounds a game this year and has great size for the position. In general, I look at it too, like in situations where Chet Holmgren gets pulled away from the rim and pick and roll, or at least gets pulled towards the rim in a help situation. Laurie to me is like that second line of defense, the guy that can, you know, when Chet gets off his feet, who can come over and make the help defense play at the rim or can clean up the defensive glass when Chet gets pulled away from the rim. Cause that's another big issue is when Chet Anytime Chet gets pulled away from the rim or has to contest a shot at the rim, he's just out of position. And now you got a bunch of guys who are six, five and shorter trying to grab the defensive rebound. And that just puts you in a, in a predicament. Right. And so I think like having that type of player, a Lori Markin in a Pascal Siakam, just a big forward that slots between Jalen Williams and Chet Holmgren is the kind of piece that rounds this all out. Now that said, I don't think they should have to overpay for that either. And so the smart approach there is like, if you can get in on Markin, if you get in on Siakam without having to empty your chest drawers, then that's the move you go with. Cause I don't think either player is as clean and perfect of a fit uh, to justify kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it, if that makes sense. Yeah, marketing is one who makes just so much sense. I think if you ask anybody around the league, that's like one of the names that comes up for them because he slots so well into that. If you think about a lineup that has 
there, if you think about their starting lineup without Yeti and with Markkinen, it just makes a ton of sense. So I understand why that name comes up all the time. I think one of the things, and, and these are the kind of guys, when I say big perimeter guys, this is what I mean, guys who can play the four and play on the perimeter. Um, because I think the thing they have to be careful about is like a lot of the big, like some people want like that traditional, like bruising power forward, right? And I just don't know that you can find the guy who does that stuff and doesn't just muck up what they want to do in terms of, as you've talked about, they want everybody to put the ball on the floor. They want everybody to pass it and they want everybody to be a threat to shoot it. And like a lot of those kind of rugged rebounding guys are not going to fit that bill for you. No, hundred percent. And I think you even have to be careful with the ball stopper type, you know, like yeah. uh, the Rui Hachimura, DeAndre Hunter kind of archetype. Jeremy Grant kind of falls into this too. They, mm -hmm. they, they are guys that in a five out system would struggle to make quick decisions and to drive and kick. And so they make more sense in bench groups and look kind of hunting their shot, so to speak. And like in general, like, I think that was a big issue that's kind of held back the Hawks offense over the years is that DeAndre mm -hmm. Hunter is a little bit of like a, oh, we created this advantage and he just, he caught and he waited for the guy to close out and he took a jab step and then he went to his left and took a pull up 15 footer. And it's like, eh, yeah, like he's good at that shot, but like, it just kind of d disrupts the flow of the offense. And so both Siakam and Markkanen, in my opinion, kind of represent guys that can play drive and kick basketball and would thrive alongside other skilled players. And that to me is what draws me to the, them two in particular. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think one of the underrated things about what the Thunder has built is that like in the old days, they looked, they had an archetype they looked for. It was usually like an, a wing athlete. They didn't really care as much about shooting. They wanted a guy who was really good defensively who played off Durant and Westbrook and did some of the dirty work type stuff. The types of players they're looking for now, I think really high on the list of priorities for them is quick processors, guys who make decisions very fast. So they want the ball to hit their hands. And if that guy has a shot, it goes up. And if he doesn't have a shot, if he's got the drive, he can take the drive immediately and figure it out from there. Do I score? Do I kick? Um, and if neither one of those things is there, the ball moves. It just goes away out of his hands quickly. And they want that whole process to happen in a blink you know they want all that stuff to be very fast the only guy who gets the ball in his hands to kind of figure out what he's going to do is Shea and most of that is because he's attacking and his attacks are not as deliberate or they're a little more deliberate they're not as fast um you know he plays at, a, at his own pace everybody knows that's part of Shea's game but everybody else when the ball hits their hands it's got to be a quick decision yeah it's that, that's the Jalen Williams thing that we were talking about earlier is like yeah. He is both a guy that has a really exciting on-ball potential and a really quick processor who can attack closeouts and, and make reads quickly. And that sort yep. of thing is such a, an important connective piece. By the way, I think that's a big part of how Austin Reeves has been a better closing option than D'Angelo Russell for the Lakers. It's, a, it's an interesting concept because... You know, I would argue if you had to give the keys of the offense to somebody for, for you know, 82 games, D'Angelo Russell's just better than Austin. And you've kind of seen some of that in some specific lineups where Austin's on-ball reps haven't looked that great. But consistently, when he's a second-side creator next to LeBron and AD, he's perfect because he's such a good, quick decision-maker. And again, I think it's like, I think it's such a natural ability thing. And that's why it's got to be the right four that you bring in because you're not going to be able to bring in a guy that's not a great fit and then train him how to do that. It's just not something that guys pick up quickly, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a great point about Austin. You know, people around here, I think, have been surprised, obviously, after he played at OU, um, that he's been as good a pro because I don't think they saw at OU this kind of thing. He wasn't exactly this kind of player. But I think you're right. Playing off great players is a skill. 
um, understanding how to use the space uh, that you get off of great players and also understanding how to quickly operate in that space. It's such a, it, it, there's a, there's a basketball IQ piece to it. There's a, a quick thinking piece to it. And there's just a feel thing to it. And Austin really has that. I mean, I, if you put him in a lot of situations, he's not this good a player. He's such a good player because he's so good at playing off great players. Yeah, and LeBron picked up on that immediately in that first camp yeah. uh, when he ended up calling Rob and being like, "Sign this dude," <laughs> you know, because like yeah, again, like right. and th- that's my thing. I think I think LeBron gets this concept. I think he just sees a guy like this. I think he had the same kind of deal with Caruso, where it's just like, oh, like this dude understands simple things like when to cut, you know, when to yeah. flash high post when there's a. Uh, some sort of um, you know gapping going on from the defense or something like that. Like they, he just like LeBron. It, it, I think I shout out to Mark Titus at Barstool Sports. He kind of coined this term for me, and I've stolen it from him. But basketball is more art than science, in my opinion. And and so mm. much of it is about like these like a, a five man unit being greater than the sum of its parts. And that's the kind of thing that kind of ties that that that's what ties uh, lineups together, in my opinion. It's a great point. It's a, you're a man after Sam Presti's heart because he thinks of basketball musically, <laughs> even though, you know, like this is an analytical kind of franchise. They think about things numerically, but they also really think about fit and feel. And he thinks of a basketball team like a band that, you know, it's, it's, you have a bunch of people who are individually skilled, but what matters is what they produce together. Um, and so, yeah, that's an art for him that he, that's, that's his art that he focuses on. Um, Jason, we're about out of time. I want to ask you, you know, barring a trade, barring anything, you know, uh, earth shattering, like what you're talking about, the changes to make up of their team. What are you watching from for right now from here until, let's say, the trade deadline or whatever? What, what about the Thunder interests you moving forward? I'd like to see um, what they do about this Josh Giddy situation, just from the standpoint of like not only the struggles, but just the public perception and everything surrounding that mm-hmm. whole that whole system, just, like you got to think it's it's been mostly good times in Oklahoma City over the last couple of years, right? And what they don't need is something that kind of derails that whole situation. Yep. Also, I, I am curious to see if they make a trade just simply from the standpoint of where the front office's head is at. Meaning, like, do they view this as a big picture? There's somebody that's in our, uh, in our system that we're grooming for this spot or – is there a specific player they're waiting for in, in free agency? Is there a specific, you know, uh, a trade that they're looking for that's not within this deadline, but maybe more down the line? I'm just curious to see because that would be a great indicator, in my opinion, of how close the front office thinks this team is. And what's crazy about that is, like, they're not that far away. We're talking, like, Denver's the clear best team in the West, in my opinion, Minnesota has entered in the conversation with the Lakers and the Suns for me as like a team that's got the puncher's chance. But the, I think the Thunder's in that tier. I think they got every bit as much of a puncher's chance to win the conference. And so they could, in theory, be one deal away from playing in the finals. And, and so I, I'm just really curious to see where the front office is at and how aggressive they're going to be. Awesome. Jason, let us know uh, for people who want to hear more of your work and follow you on Twitter. Let us know how they do that. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT. Uh, the show is on YouTube on our new channel at Hoops Tonight, and then also wherever you get your podcast under Hoops Tonight. Jason, thanks so much, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to subscribe, you can do that on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard, maybe leave us a review. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.